and Jericho and the brothel. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men, hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax, and she had laid, uh, laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fjords, and the gates were shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So she lies. Now the irony here that, that probably we don't feel it as much, but, but you would feel it if you were reading this, um, when it was first written, of course, and then for thousands of years, here we have a woman outsmarting two groups of men, the king himself and these supposed, you know, super soldiers that were <laughs> coming to get these Israeli spies. You have this woman here just totally outcunning them. Fantastic. Fantastic. The Bible is alive. If, if you've never read the Bible, read the Bible. It's alive uh, with great narrative, the irony of that. Now, is it a sin to, to lie? <laughs> that also comes into this. She clearly lies. She's held up as a hero, as we'll see as we go. What does this tell us about the nature of sin and lying? Now, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to say. But here's what I think and why we have an example of somebody lying here. And it's sort of heralded amongst the people of God as a great act of faith. Uh, what we see here is that, and, and we read elsewhere, lying is not good. We shouldn't lie, okay? If you didn't know that, just stop lying. But there is something even more important than following the rules of the law. And that is following the movement, the plan, the purposes of God. So don't get so caught up in your life just following. Nobody ever was saved by not lying for their entire life. They are saved by partnering with the mission of God in the world. So hard, hard, hard to know um, exactly how to take this, but what we do know is that she sees something more important even than not lying. Okay. Now let's look at verse 8. This is, this is a flashback, I think. Uh, some have wondered here, if, is this a flashback or is this continuing chronologically with the narrative? I think it's a flashback. So I think you just have sort of a, a broad view of what's happened, how she rescues them, and then we zoom back into a moment of what happened in the exchange before um, the soldiers came, the Jericho soldiers came to find them. So verse 8, before the men lay down, that's up in the roof, she, that's Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Do you see that? Do you see her faith? She has more faith than many of those in Israel who are wondering if we could even take the land. She says, I know that's new faith. And as we talked about last week, new faith 
always leads to something else. And what's this new faith based upon? Let's keep reading. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. That's the people of Jericho. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan in Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. So they've heard stories. They've heard many stories of these people who are sort of encamped miles away that they kind of know about are probably going to attack them. And they've heard stories about what their God has done and how he's brought them up out of Egypt and how seemingly water dispersed so that they might walk through on dry land and how Pharaoh's mighty army was sunk all by the hand of this God. And for Rahab, it's turned into true belief and true faith. Now, how did they hear about these stories? We have, we, we have no knowledge of Israel sending them any prophets to tell them about this is who the God is. They have all heard this through hearsay and gossip. We don't know who the messenger was. But you know what? That's not important. It's the message that's important, not the messenger. So they've got the message of who this God is, and they've got the knowledge to act. Each and every person in this city. For what we can tell, it was only Rahab who acted with this message and this knowledge with true new faith in a new God who she says is, is the Lord. He is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. That's saying he's the God of everything. For her whole life, she's probably worshipped other gods. She's had spiritual experiences, but now she comes in contact with the one true God of everything. And that's what we set up last week. We said in, in our city, even though our city is sort of underchurched and not a lot of Christians, we're a spiritual city. But we cannot equate spirituality with this God of the Old and the New Testament. Th those aren't the same thing. When the God of the Old and the New Testament, of the God that Rahab says is the God of the heavens and the earth beneath, when he shows up, something different happens to you than just a spiritual experience. It's not to say the spiritual experience is not a real experience. It's just to say something very different happens. And Rahab sees that that this God is different than all the gods she'd grown up worshiping and praising and sacrificing to, which she would have most definitely been a part of. She says something's different about this God, and he showed up in my brothel by these two spies. And she gets it. She sees it for what it is. God's showed up in my life, and she acts. Look what she does. Verse 12. Now then... She's speaking to the spies, the Israelites. Please swear to me by the Lord, and that's by Yahweh. She's using his personal name. If, if you see in the Old Testament, Lord with all capital letters, that means actually the Hebrew word there is the personal name of Yahweh. So she refers to him. Swear by Yahweh that I 
that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. You see what she's doing here? She is invoking the promise that was given to Abraham. We talked about that last week. God promised Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Speaking of the people of Israel. And Rahab seems to know this. And she says, I am dealing kindly with you. I am blessing you. Therefore, you must bless me. And she says, give me a sure sign. We'll talk about it here in a second. She's asking for a covenant promise. She gets it. God shows up and she gets it. She's like, I must act now. Verse 13. That you will save alive, not just herself, but look at what she does. My father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Wow. She's, she's saying, I believe, and I know that my faith will save me. And as we will read on, we see her story, her faith saves her. And it doesn't just save her, it saves her whole family both physically and, I would presume, spiritually as well. And here's just a, just a mini application. Do not underestimate the importance of your consideration, of your hearing the message of God, of your wrestling with it, of your experiencing God coming near to you. It's not only for you it's for everyone that you're connected to. Rahab shows us that. She gets it. God showed up to her in her brothel, and she realizes there's a chance for everyone that she loves to now be connected to this Yahweh. Your consideration, your wrestling with God, your trying to understand who He is and what He has done, your trying to experience His presence in your life is not just for you. It is for your children, it is for your friends, it is for your family. You see that? Everyone connected to Rahab, her faith ultimately will lead to the salvation of others. It's fantastic. What a model for us. And so she asks for a covenant. Verse 14, and the men said, they're about to make an oath, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord, when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. They make an oath to Rahab, just like she asked. Promise me. Then, verse 15, she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. Again, now the flashback's over. Now I think it's morning time and, or some other time of the day, and now the narrative continues, and she lets them down by a rope through a window because her house is attached to the wall of Jericho, which if you know the story, those walls are about to come down. She lets them down through uh, the window in her house so that she, uh, that because she lived in the wall, verse 16, and she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go on your way. The men said to her, another oath, 
We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord, the same one that she lowered them in the window, tie this scarlet cord in the window. This will be the sign of the covenant through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, that, into your, house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell the business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord, truly Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So you see this oath language that is here? She gets it. She understands who this God is and how he's made a covenant with Israel, and she says, I want to be a part of this covenant. And she makes a covenant with the spies who are speaking and acting on behalf of the nation of Israel. So flip forward with me now to Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, and you will see the conclusion of the Rahab story. In between there, a bunch of things happen. The people cross over the Jordan. They come to Jericho. They circle around the city. They blow some trumpets. They scream really loud. The, the walls fall down. I don't think the wall that, that uh, Rahab's house was uh, attached to fell down, though, which I think nobody ever talks about that because look at what happened. Chapter 6, verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Her faith acting has saved her and she lives in Israel to this day. Meaning, you should go talk to her. And hear about it. This fantastic woman, a prophetic prostitute who gave Israel the courage they needed to carry out the divine command to conquer the land. You see that? God used a prostitute to give Israel the courage they needed to act. A Canaanite. A Canaanite. If you knew what that meant, a Canaanite. A woman. A woman? This is who you used? A prostitute? She's the one who gave us the courage to follow God's command? Three times despised, yet she is the hero of the very first conquest of the promised land because she was the first Canaanite to confess to the sovereignty of God and demand his grace be applied to her. (laughs) It's such a great, this is so great. 
and it was. She was saved. When God shows up in Rahab's life, just like we talked about last week, new faith leads to new hope, leads to new family, leads to new purposes, leads to new morality. All those new things are part of what? What we've said. When God shows up, he doesn't just give you a spiritual experience. He gives you a new identity. Flip, flip with me real quick to the very end of Joshua. You, you may have heard this. Chapter 24, the very end, we have a very famous um, a very famous line. You, I used to have it in my house growing up in the bathroom on a plaque. <laughs> and Joshua is giving his final speech to the people, and he says, As for my house, speaking of himself and his family, we will serve the Lord. This is verse 15. We will serve the Lord. We will serve Yahweh. And this is like one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. That's why it's in next to toilets everywhere in America. It's so famous. Choose today whom you will serve, Joshua says. As for my house, we will serve Yahweh. Guess who was the first person in this story, in this book, to do that, to say those words? Rahab. Joshua's just stealing it from Rahab. She says, as for my family, we will serve the Lord. And she does. She is given a new identity when God shows up. She couldn't plan that. She wasn't hanging outside. Israeli spies, welcome. 50% off. She's just... He shows up, and, and she has an opportunity for a new identity, and she takes it. But her story doesn't end here. Uh, you can flip with me. We'll throw it up here on the screen. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. We're going to read this together. This is Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, the account of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who is claimed to be the Son of God, come in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, who dies on a cross to take on himself the sin of the world and rises three days later to prove that it is finished. And at the beginning of Matthew, at the very beginning of the New Testament, someone's name pops up in Jesus' genealogy. You wouldn't believe this. Look at this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, the Canaanite woman, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Another great story for another day. Then Obed, the father of Jesse. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Rahab right in the center of it. The Canaanite prostitute who gave the people of God the courage they needed because of her faith in his sovereignty to take the land that he had promised. But wait, that's not it. Hebrews chapter 11 in what's known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
the hall of fame of faith, guess whose name we find? By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But wait, that's not it. James, the brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James, he talks about Rahab too. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Are you seeing the fame of this woman? When God shows up, he offers a new identity. Rahab was very well known in Jericho. She was known for her sin. Now, she is very well known around the world, generation to generation to generation, and she's known by her Savior. (laughs) When God shows up, we're no longer known by our sin, but we're known by our Savior. And our Savior is powerful. So let's turn now and see if anything similar to this happens when Jesus shows up. Because if he's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament come in the flesh, we would expect that he acts in similar ways to the God of the Old Testament. Let's see. John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 8. In the back quarter, back sixth of your Bible, you'll find it. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, what you're going to notice here is there's, at least in my Bible, a little insert that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. So why am I preaching on it? I wrestled with that this week. Should I preach on this? And here's the conclusion I came to. You're going to find it in every Bible because it's been in every Bible for the last almost 2,000 years. The question is, were these words originally in, written by the hand of John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus that was with him and saw him resurrected um, and worked to start the church after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God? Uh, did he write these words? And I think most scholars agree now because this section is not in the, most, the earliest manuscripts that we have, but even though we would say maybe John didn't write this, this is clearly a story about Jesus that was circulating, and so somebody at some point decided we should record this for the ages. And so even though most scholars say John didn't write this, most all of them would say this is an authentic encounter between a woman who is caught in adultery and Jesus Christ who claimed to be God in the flesh. So it's an authentic encounter that we know about probably through oral tradition that at some point was inserted into the gospel of John. So should we be preaching that? Well, here's the deal. All of this points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So if we have something that we believe to be an authentic story of something that Jesus did, I think it's okay to study it and think about it and apply it to our lives because Jesus is the word in the flesh. This is the word in print. And um, 
Jesus said a lot of things and did a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write down in their Gospels. It's not like those things don't matter. We just don't have an account of them, but we seem to have an account of this one not written by John, but inserted after that we can trust as authentic. So we're going to study it. You've probably heard it before. Maybe you haven't. It's a very famous story. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, just right outside Jerusalem. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, which is inside the walls of Jerusalem. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees show up. And these are kind of antagonists in the Gospels. They don't like Jesus because people like him more than them. So they're a little jealous, and they're always trying to catch Jesus. Always trying to show him to be a fraud. And they show up. And look at who they bring with them. They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the 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 law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. What's Jesus going to do? Don't read ahead. What is he going to do? I mean, you got to place, when you're reading narrative, you have to place yourself in the story to get everything that that God's trying to tell you through it. What what is he going to do? Jesus could have easily, here's the test. They're going to see how much he follows the law. But he also knows if he's the first to say, yeah, this is what it says, he's basically sending this woman to her death. It's a sort of an impossible place Jesus is in. It, it feels to me when I read this, it's like a like mob initiation or something, right? It's like literally they found somebody, they're going to kill him anyhow, and, and they bring the new guy, and they're like, here's the gun, show us that you're loyal. What's he going to do? Does he pull the trigger to show that, yeah, My father's words are important. Adultery is a sin. The fair thing is that comes with sin is death. Or he could rescue himself and just give no answer and sort of walk away and say, like, listen, you put me, this is unfair. You put me in an unfair position. I'm going to just walk away. And then they couldn't accuse him of not loving the law and they couldn't accuse him of being too lenient. He could just walk away. But what would happen if he did that? Certainly what would happen? The woman would be lynched by the crowd. And Jesus' love and compassion for her required action. He's not just going to walk away to save his own reputation or skin. Let's see what he does. Jesus bent down. And he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said to them, Let him who is is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down, wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up 
and said to her, woman, which is not a derogatory term. <laughs> it's like saying, my lady, <laughs> if you're in the Middle Ages, or madame, or ma'am, if you're from the South, or like we'd say in Seattle, hey you. <laughs> hey you. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, her first words, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. So much to learn from this. What do you do when you find yourself in a conversation about sexual practices or someone who's clearly caught in sexual sin? Do you just kind of not say anything? Or does your love and compassion compel you to speak up? Do you speak up and say, wait a minute, who among us is without sin? You see, Jesus' action is not condemning her sin or any sexual practice and saying to each his own, to each her own. He's not doing that, but he's seeing the human being. He's acknowledging real sin. He's acknowledging that sin is not her identity, and he's acknowledging that her sin is forgivable by God's grace through himself. And that's the same thing you do in any conversation where this comes up. Acknowledge that sin is real, acknowledge that sin is not identity, and acknowledge that sin is, any sin is forgivable by Jesus Christ through his blood. And here we have this woman, and I just, I just love the picture of Jesus bending down before her, and she's standing, just showing, reorienting how God thinks of us. This woman who, who was destined to die and now is destined to live. Like Rahab, we have here a woman known only to those who brought her to trial. They caught her literally in the act of adultery. And, and, and should we just, if you haven't already made a little note in your Bible, make a little note. Where the heck is the male? Where is he? The Old Testament says he should be stoned to death as well. This just smells funny, doesn't it? Where in the world is the man? No double standards. There are no double standards. Where is the man? But here you have a woman brought to trial, known only by those who brought her by her sin. See, she has no name. They don't call her by name. They just say the adulteress. They're known only by her sin, and she leaves the story changed. Her identity before she meets Jesus is her sin. Then Jesus shows up in her life in the midst of her shame and her guilt. Again, look, not by a choice of her own. She didn't ask to come to this trial. This trial, she could have been put away and they could have brought the question. They brought her here publicly and she gets a chance for God to show up in her life. And now we know her not by her old identity, but by her new identity the adulteress saved by Jesus. It's fair to presume that she left 
her life of sin, started following and worshiping Jesus. Why? Because why would you keep telling her story if everybody knew she kept up with the sin, right? So that she's probably following, worshiping Jesus, telling people what he's done for her. She has a changed life. When God shows up, you get a new identity. You're no longer known by your sin. You're known by your Savior. So here we have it. The Old Testament, when God shows up, that happens. In the New Testament, when God shows up in God the Son, Jesus, this happens. Now what do we ask? What about today? What about in the age of the Spirit where God has sent his Spirit to us all? What happens today? Well, it's so interesting to me that Rahab is still referred to in the New Testament as Rahab, Rahab the prophet. Why? She's the most famous Rahab there ever was. People would know if you just said Rahab. Why did they say the prostitute? Because it's not like her sin past is removed. I mean, the consequence of it is, but actually it's still attached to her name because she will always be known as Rahab, the prostitute saved by God. The adulteress will always be known as the adulteress saved by God. Generally speaking, every single one of us who calls upon the name of Jesus and accepts the new identity that he brings when he shows up will be known for eternity as a sinner saved, rescued, freed by God's grace in Jesus through faith. That's your identity. You don't lose that. You are a sinner. I am a sinner saved by God's grace in Christ. You see that? Old identity, the prostitute. New identity, prostitute, saved, rescued, freed by God's grace in Jesus through faith. The adulterer, old identity, the new identity of the John 8 woman. Adulterer, saved, rescued, freed by God's grace in Jesus through faith. Me, self-centered, coward. New identity. The self-centered coward, saved, rescued, freed by God's grace in Jesus through faith. I would never have stood up here before God gave me a new identity. I would never have spoken up about sexual sin. I would never, I was a coward, only thinking about myself. Who are you? Who were you? If you're struggling to identify the sin that you've been saved from, try this. Imagine if you hadn't known the limitations set in your life by Christ and his church, where would you be? Because maybe you came to, maybe you grew up in the church and you came to faith young. Where do you think you would be if you'd never had that background? Just think about it. That is Christ saving you, freeing you, rescuing you from that life. We all have some fantasy life that we know we would go down that path if not for knowing and God showing up in our life. That's who you are, a sinner saved by God's grace. Now, we need to talk very specifically here about sex for a second because the text purposefully draws forward the topic of sexual sin. We can't just deny that. So to avoid it would be cowardice. And what did I just say? I'm no longer a coward. So I've got to talk about it. I told you in the Rahab story, it's sprinkled with these sexual innuendos. It's sexually foggy. In fact, two of the words used uh, just right there in verse 1 when it says, they came into the house and they lodged there. Those are sexual terms used elsewhere in the book of Genesis to talk about people engaging in sexual intercourse. 
Now, the prepositions around them are different, and I think it's purposeful. They want you to be wrestling with, what were they doing there, those spies? Were they, you know, participating in the ways of that? Like, we don't know, but it's purposefully meant to draw up sexual sin in us. Not, not the idea of sexual sin in us, okay? You be careful with your words. Just like the author of Judges. Okay, very careful. So why? Why? I, th- I think this. The author of the Rahab story is purposefully playing on our heightened emotions that, that circle around sexual situation and activity, particularly in religious communities. And I think the Rahab story and the John 8 story, they speak to this. In one of two ways, we are all sinning around the issue of sex. All of us. Throw that up here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, sexual, or nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Clear. And such were some of you. But, the best three words in all of Scripture, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Both are true. And and for us living in America in 2019, this category is probably most of us, that we were some of these. Sinning sexually against the commands and designs of God, we were like Rahab before God showed up. We were like the John 8 woman. M- might we be so honest to say that prostitution is not just a profession, but prostitution is sex exchanged for anything else. I exchange sex for something else. Money, security, maintaining my relationship, Pleasure for pleasure's sake, control, power. Is that not the same as doing it for money? We sort of put certain people in this category. Maybe we're all Rahab. Because sex was only ever meant to be the physical expression of a pre-existing and acknowledged spiritual union. In the context of marriage, we've acknowledged it publicly. There is a real spiritual connection that God has brought us together and we express it through our physical action. That's what sex was always meant to be. So anything outside of that would be using sex for some other reason. Don't say, oh, I'm not like Rahab, if you've used sex in those ways. But here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God shows up, when Jesus came near to you and to me, and we accepted the gift of grace and forgiveness, we are washed white of, as snow. That sexual sin cannot stick to us anymore. 
It cannot stain you again, even if it pops up in the future. That is a brilliant promise. And such were some of you, but you were washed by the blood of Jesus. No matter how deep, no matter how much your sexual sin was a part of your life, even if it was your profession, that is not you today. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have a new identity and a new destiny, just like Rahab. And Jesus says, but go and sin no more. The second category, because some of you might be doing pretty well in this category of sexual sin. Or maybe you just think you are. Because what if I told you that these stories are less about Rahab's sexual sin or the adulterer's sexual sin and more about the religious community's expression of their own disgust and hatred for that sin. For thousands of years, people have been reading this story and would have been shocked to discover that a prostitute could be forgiven by God, that an adulterer caught in the act is the example of the redeemed people of God. They would have been shocked, baffled. And that maybe you don't think that way is actually a sign that the gospel is a part of our culture, whether we acknowledge it or not. This is because from the beginning of time, religious folk have been placing sexual sin in a special sin category. Worse than any other sin, and all religions do it, not just Christianity. Sexual sin is unforgivable and irreversible. And in the Old and the New Testament, God shouts out and he says to this kind of religious thinking, you are wrong. When I show up, nothing and no one is beyond my redemption. And I'm going to prove it to you through Rahab. And I'm going to prove it through you, to you through the adulterous woman of John 8. And some of you in the room need to hear this loud and clear. You are wrong. Stop believing lies about me, God is saying today. Stop limiting my power to save. Stop diminishing your own sin by amplifying the sexual sin of others. Stop with your sickening self-righteousness. It's making me nauseous, God says. Stop it. <sighs> Sexual sin is not unredeemable. The good news is that Jesus can save anyone from anything, at any time, if he chooses. Don't lie about him to prop up your self-righteousness. Some of us in the room need to stop our sexual sin, and some of us in this room need to stop our self-righteousness with words and thoughts concerning others' sexual sin. Rahab will be with Jesus in his coming kingdom. The prostitute, the woman, the Canaanite. The woman caught in adultery, caught in the act, will be with Jesus in his kingdom. 
I believe many of the self-righteous who came to stone her that day saw through their encounter with Jesus the waywardness of their hearts and they repented and they will be with Jesus and his coming kingdom. All because when God showed up in their lives in one way or another, they listened, they believed, they saw the error in their ways, they turned to trust God and not themselves, and they followed in the new way that God presented to them. No longer known by their sin, but known by their Savior. What of you? Will you be standing with Rahab? Will you be standing with the woman of John 8? Will you be standing with the once self-righteous? Will you be standing in the glory and the joy of Christ's presence in his coming kingdom? What will be your response when God shows up in your life? Let's pray. Father God, this is a beautiful story. This is a hard story. Because when we hear these words and we think of these types of people, if we're honest, we wonder how will they ever turn from their ways. May we be inspired and motivated by the prophetess Rahab that no matter what life you've lived, you are not outside of the reach of the Almighty God who can wash away your sin and your habit as clean as snow, if you'd only accept from him the new identity that he is offering in his son, Jesus. God, I pray for my friends here, however they've been stirred today, that their first step would not be back, but it would be forward towards you, towards your grace, towards your son, knowing that it is in him and it is in his presence that we stand and have life and life to the full. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.